0: To another episode of the Cosmic Salon. I'm Nish, and I have a remarkable soul that has come in to chat with me. I met him through the Reverend Bill McDonald. He's an incredible soul. And so when he recommended three people to me, I jumped on it because anything Bill finds fascinating. Surely I do. Once I looked in at Jim Breton's, uh bio and what he's doing, what has happened to him, where he's been, and the world that is unfolding before him, I have been transfixed. There are so many beautiful synchronicities here. And anyone that looks into another person's stories and narratives, ultimately their soul, they look back. And so when I was going through his journey, I was dumbfounded. I actually watched them all twice and a couple of them three times. And when I say watch, it's because it's YouTube. I actually listened. This is such a unique story, and what Jim brings is another facet in this great fractalizing of this experience we're all moving through and part of. Welcome, Jim. It is a great honor to have you here.
1: Hi, Nish. How are you
0: today? Fantastic. <laughs> this, is, this is a good day.
1: <laughs> it is. I'm glad to be with you and your uh, listeners and, and looking forward to sharing my experience
0: with you. Thank you. I feel honored and in gratitude. It's definitely a greater service to talk about these things and dig deeper into what we're all actually participating in.
1: Exactly. It really is. And I think that's the biggest driver after you have an experience like this is finding opportunities to share it so that we can all compare notes with our journey and see what we share and what's different and Just kind of help each other keep moving forward.
0: Yes. Let's look a little bit at your bio before October 6, 2016. Of course, this is the Cosmic Salon, so I'm not hung up on all the wonderful accomplishments so many people get tied down with. And that's what's great about your telling is we're more than this. And I am constantly driving that home. But you have really, really some remarkable stuff behind you.
1: Well, I've been fortunate, you know, like you say, if if we sort of stand back from all of our accomplishments and we look at it with a, say, from a higher perspective, I think we can see better how it should fit into our lives. And when I look at all the things I've done, which I can rattle through in a moment— Really, I can take it back to when I was a child. You know, I was a very curious child growing up in the 60s, like a lot of little boys. You know, I was looking at all the popular mechanics, getting excited for the when we were going to have the flying saucer in every garage or use a jetpack to go to work or go to the moon for tourism in the year 2000, which was still far off. Oh uh, Yeah, right. So, you know, but basically it was science fiction. And, and one of my favorite books back then was called The Infinite Worlds of Maybe. And that's a great tie in between what was then science fiction and what today is quantum mechanics. Yes. So that was a big part of my imagination. Another one was I like to watch wildlife programs on television. And I remember literally sitting there watching on a black and white TV sitting on our kitchen table. And I asked, how do I do that for a living? And a mentor of mine one time told me that was as good as a prayer. And then my father became a pilot in the 60s and I fell in love with aviation. But it was really old vintage aviation, like just before World War One and around that period. Because to me, the, the aircraft at that time were just works of art with their wood and their metal and their copper, their brass, you know, just everything about them. And to me, like flying is still magical, even though I perfectly understand how it works. But back then, I think it would have even been more so. And the long story made short is that of the dreams and visions these interests engendered, I've gotten to realize pretty much every one of them in my life so far.
0: Yeah, that's what's remarkable when I was... Uh, diving into your story a bit, you really had this ability to manifest and follow your dreams. That's a struggle. A lot of people have a hard time getting to that point.
1: I think a lot of it is just, stay curious, believe in the dream, just don't take no for an answer. It's really that. (laughs) And obviously, so many of our choices in life are ones that make us go left or go right. And sometimes, you know, we have to put our childhood dreams on the back burner. And for a time, I'd say I did, but I never forgot them. The first of these, I believe I was able to realize was going to live in Africa and learning how to make wildlife films. And that's a very holistic experience. It's not like going to university and getting a degree in film studies. This is like knowing how to fix a Land Rover that breaks down in the middle of the desert, how to conserve your water, how to read animal behavior, how to really be one with nature out there. These are things that would be very hard to teach in, uh, in a college course in a very comfortable, air-conditioned room. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And but, but anyway, you know, I I got to go live in Southwestern Africa in a country called Namibia, which means the big nothing. And it kind of is about two people per square mile. It was a very desert type of African landscape, but it was just beautiful. And I truly enjoyed my time there. And what I got to do was work on films for a lot of different companies. And it eventuated with winning an Emmy for my work with National Geographic. And that was really cool. And it was right at that very moment that Disney had sent out a team to do some uh, location scouting, again, out in the middle of the desert, 300 miles from anyone. And while I was standing there filming a sunset on a really tall sand dune, uh, they drove up near me, and they pulled out a bunch of cases, unfolded a flexible satellite dish, and the next thing I knew, they had a telephone handset in their hand, and they were talking to them back to their studios in L.A., live. And I was thinking, wow. And I asked, what is that? They said, this is a satellite telephone. And, of course, as most people in the media, especially today because we have so many technology tools at our disposal, we're always thinking of a way to use uh, emerging technology to help us tell our story. You know, What can I do with my story if I had this tool? So I asked, has anyone ever pushed video over a system like that? And I said, we don't know. I tell you right then and there, I knew I was going to figure it out. And I was. It took me a couple of years to really resolve it. And for a while, I was the only person who could do it. And of course, that meant um, I could travel to more places in the world, transmitting live video from places that were formerly impossible. You just couldn't haul a satellite dish into some of these places like the Mount Everest or the Titanic or things like that. And so I I did get to go to all these places, all seven continents, the Titanic, North Pole, Mount Everest, a bunch of war zones. So this was employing that part of the dream that loves science fiction. You know, like, let's take a TV truck and shrink it into a backpack. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) So when you saw the phone, what year was that? 1993.
1: Okay. Yes. And what's interesting is I saw it, I just knew right away, wow, wouldn't it be cool to go live live? from a, a native village or a waterhole or something like that, live into the World Wide Web. And the World Wide Web was only created in 1993 as well to give some organization to the Internet. So I just saw the possibilities there to go live into schools or into you know, people's homes and share the adventure with them in an interactive fashion. So that was pretty cool. I was able to further modify my little satellite system I invented to work with telemedicine. And I was a lecturer. I became a lecturer at Yale University School of Medicine in telemedical applications. And I was able to integrate a bunch of really cool medical devices that were destined for the space station. And we went to Mount Everest two years in a row to test them in really harsh conditions. So it basically just, it was, it's been a wild ride the entire way.
0: Were you always technically inclined as
1: a child? I think it's more about knowing where you want to go with the technology. Technology for technology's sake, I'll just say that would be hard to learn. But if you know where you want to go, by intuition alone, you'll know what technologies could be employed to get you there. And for me, like I said, I just wanted to basically take what I was doing and, uh, as far as filming to film or tape and say i'd like to go live with this so it was just sort of how do i connect the dots between the camera and the viewer that gets me there so it was just a matter of knowing what i wanted to ask because you know when you sit down and, and you talk about things with people and sometimes the concepts are still ambiguous people will say okay what is it you want what does success look like and once you know that you can work it backwards from that end state to what you have now what you know is emerging, and what you still need. And so that's how we broke it down, and it really did work out.
0: And it's an interesting shift into being a war correspondent, I think. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, it's funny. I I made a joke about it. It is the dot-com bubble burst around 2000, and I could see it coming. The only people left with any money to pay me to run around the world with my system were the major news agencies like, you know, NBC and here in America, NBC, ABC, CNN, and all that. So I did work for all of them, and that was great. I sort of settled on NBC News because of its proximity to where I live in Connecticut. And, I started with them three months before 9-11 to further refine my system for their needs. And as soon as 9-11 happened, I was out of here for three months. I was in Northern Africa. I was in Eastern Europe. I was in Afghanistan. Came back for three weeks to celebrate the holidays, and then I was off to Southeast Asia to chase terrorists there with the uh, uh, special forces. Then that certainly fed into, of course, you know, when we went to Iraq in 2003, it was just sort of being in the right time at the right place to get out from behind the camera and be in front of the camera. And that's how my uh, correspondent days began.
0: How did dealing with or viewing and observing what was going on on that front inform the you of that moment?
1: It's a really great thing you say that. I feel like I was pretty detached. I mean, I was embedded with the United States Marines, and they were a great bunch of guys. I really enjoyed my time with them. I mean, one time we were in this firefight for about three and a half hours, and we we didn't have cover uh, on all sides, but I just remembered feeling very peaceful and kind of one with the universe. And I asked somebody, one of my mentors later about that, I said, you know, by all rights, I should have been scared to death, but instead I really felt peaceful. And they said, oh, I know why. I said, why? I said, because in that moment, everything is true. Meaning it was the kind of situation that had such intensity around it that it was hard not to be present. And when we're fully present, that's the kind of peace we have.
0: When you're confronted with very much the nowness of life and death in those situations, what was your connection at that point to the idea of death?
1: I felt like I'd made my peace with it that that there's a certain, you know, sort of fatalism to it. Like on the day that it comes, if I don't go looking for it, it's going to come looking for me. And I, um, I'd even had an out of butt experience in the late eighties that saw me one day getting on a helicopter in the middle East at night and getting blown out of the sky. And then all of a sudden here I am, uh, was about 14 years later or something like that in the Middle East at night, getting on one Black Hawk helicopter after another. And I just, every time I got on it, I thought, tonight's the night I'm dying. Tonight's the night I'm dying over and over and over again. And you could think, well, I might do a number on your head, but I just had accepted it. And the reason I did not get blown out of the sky is that I believe that between the time I had that out of my experience and saw that as a very likely possibility And the time in which that possibility could eventuate that I had made certain choices that connected me to something bigger than I was and sort of, you know, directing my feet, let's just say a few feet to the right or the left so that I avoided getting killed.
0: Would you spend a moment with us and ruminate on the out-of-body experience
1: Sure. It was in the late 80s. I'm going to say, for some reason, I think it was like in July or the summer of 1989. Now, this is two years before the first Gulf War, the ones in which, you know, uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And in it, I saw myself in the Middle East getting on a military helicopter at night. And as we took off, suddenly somebody, I would say the rather tribal looking person, Uh, Jumped up out of the middle of nowhere and aimed a shoulder mounted missile at us and literally we locked eyes and then they hit the trigger and I saw this flash of white and, you know, I guess representing getting blown to smithereens and then I saw myself almost like coming in on a slow glide down into a, a neighborhood. And it was dusk, meaning it was gray. And what's weird about dusk is you really don't see colors that well. So everything was like in shades of gray. And I uh, had this like sign around my neck and written on that sign, you might say, was my life history. As I came down to the street level, I remember like walking around the neighborhood. I recognized it as my neighborhood and that. You know, I would walk up and it's one of those things where, you know, you want to tell people you're alive and you're okay. And since you don't have a physical mouth to do it and they only have physical ears to hear it, no one can hear you. So it just kind of drives you crazy after a while and you start thinking about leaving. And then I woke up and I literally felt like an elephant had been sitting on my chest. I don't know what that's symbolic of as to whether I had I'd stopped breathing or my heart was you know being stressed or something. But I did wake up and it was such an intense a vision that I I never forgot it. And it literally came back to me when I saw my name uh, at the Kuwaiti Air Base moving across the board to see which branch of the military I'd be embedded with. You know, it could have been the Army, could have been the Marines or Air Force. I saw it go to the Marines. It could have been infantry or air. I saw it go to air. It could have been fixed wing or rotary wing, rotary wing being helicopters. It went to rotary wing. And it was at that moment I realized I've come here to die.
0: Oh, that's incredible. At that time, also, when you had that out-of-body experience, what was your relationship with dreaming and OBEs and lucidity?
1: Well, I would say the closest to those that I had had any affinity for was a few years earlier when I had some spontaneous out-of-body experiences where I felt like I was seeing maybe a past life and a future life. So, You might say, you know, several different times I I had an out-of-body experience where I saw how I died in the past in one particular lifetime, how I was on course to die in this lifetime, and how I might die in the future in some other time. I just sort of took it in stride, and I believed it. I mean, I was... I was certainly always spiritually inclined to follow an Eastern path. I'd read the books of Robert Monroe, you know, with his hemi-sync stimulation that gets us out of our comfort zone. And so I, I was totally conversant with this. And I just accepted we come and we go. We're all just passing through. And if that's my story, so it is.
0: So before that, also in your life, and this is all just foundational stuff anyway, were you a lucid dreamer aside from these OBEs? I realize it's actually a scale Right. I would say
1: my first time lucid dreaming was only a few years ago, to be Uh honest. I will say this. Most of my dreams, I'm not very much a participant. I'm more of an observer. Occasionally I'm a participant, but more often when I've dreamt, it's as an observer. And with
0: lucid dreaming,
1: it was really cool to wake up inside your dream and say, "Okay, this is what I want to do and this is what I need to do and to actually do it.
0: When you started lucid dreaming in the more recent history, was this before October 6, 2016?
1: Yes, I'm pretty sure it was. I've always loved the idea of flying or levitating. I would do that there. I'd say, okay, I want to fly. But I'll tell you, it's interesting. It happens so often that I started to... I'd say the idea of flying lost a little bit of its luster. And I saw my ability to fly and to choose to fly in a lucid dream, not so much that it was there for my amusement, but that it was meant to be used in whatever, let's say, mission I had or whatever task I needed to accomplish while I was there. It was all part of the program rather than the amusement ride itself.
0: With lucid dreaming, have you encountered other? What I mean by that is when you're in the lucid dream, how you can discern what's you and what's not you. So when I say other other sentience that seems to push back and so you know it's not part of your psyche.
1: I will say this. Yes, I have. It's interesting, too. I'm talking about two particular instances. One time, I several nights in a row, I went back to the same place, the same looking environment, let's say that. While I was flying, I was very aware that there was somebody just off to my left and behind me that was sort of staying in formation with me. And all I can say is it was a woman with dark hair. Don't know anything. Don't recognize her. Don't know who she is. Don't know if I've met her yet. Maybe I have. My sense was that she was a friend or a friendly persuasion. Another time that's really interesting, though, is I was standing on a beach and there was a, a fence. And on the other side of the fence was this really horrible looking person. I mean, you might say from a psychic perspective, they were the representation of something bad or death or something like that. Yeah. And they were standing there holding a horse by the reins. And I just looked at them and I just sort of willed myself to levitate up basically six feet over the fence and then come down on the side and stand right next to them. And this is at dawn on a beach. And I remember just looking into their eyes and it's like I could see their wretched condition and there was nothing but compassion and sympathy on my side when I looked at them. No fear, not whatever it was they were probably used to seeing in that form. And they literally just handed me the reins to the horse and they turned around and walked away. Now, what did that mean? We could sit here all day and talk <laughs> yeah, about that. Of course. I will just say that um, I was very aware of the fact that, like I said, they were in a wretched condition, but it was nothing but compassion I had for them.
0: When you greet with an emotion oftentimes that's what comes back and so it's interesting say had you gone over and maybe perhaps had a different encounter or intent with it how that could have changed the interaction
1: absolutely absolutely
0: before we get closer in to October 6th, Mm -hmm. into where you are now. What I hear, though, is that you've been very intuitive in your life. And also, because of being intuitive, one's open to the synchronicities. And when you are that, open to synchronicities, they show themselves. They present because we're open. There seems to be definitely some of what I think people call precognition. And as we know, and from your experience in the in-between with the cogs and the possibilities, they change. And so part of what you've already said looks very precognitive. And I'm wondering, has that been part of your life? Are you Have you been able to tap into that type of energy in the past before you get to October 6th?
1: Sometimes, but I'm also very aware that a big part of our time here on Earth is the sense of discovery and the trick there would be how would people be responsible enough to be precognitive and yet maintain that same sense of discovery that it seems is supposed to be woven into the fabrics of our being. While I would say that my intuition has been pretty good along those lines, it's like I haven't really wanted to push it too far because I was really okay with being surprised when I came around the corner to see what was there. In terms of the experience I wanted to have, I would say that was my guide for anything that was precognitive, like choose this or choose that, which one's going to take you where you want to go, even though they both may be equally ambiguous in terms of which choice to make.
0: Just one other thing in the dreams, lucidity, OBE category, which is what my other show is really about, what does the landscape look like? So when we start talking about the in-between, you definitely give that it's gray. Do you dream in color? Do they change depending on lucidity and all this?
1: I would say, yes, I have dreamt in color, but it's interesting how many times the landscapes of my dream or my dreamscapes, if you will, are around dawn or dusk or at night, and like I said, what's interesting is in those environments, you're not so aware of color as you might be in the middle of the day. You know, a bright red door in the dark or at dusk might look dark gray. That's an example. So for some reason, I'm, whether it's me choosing it or it's being chosen for me, I'm being sent to places in which color isn't as important as, and maybe even it'd be distracting to me, I don't know, but it's not as important to me as understanding the mission itself.
0: I find it interesting how you constantly say mission.
1: (laughs) Well, that's what I feel like it it is for me. And and I'd say that articulation has come after my near-death experience.
0: Okay, so that's post. That's interesting. So let's give a little bit of time to... Before we dive into the juiciness of the experience itself, of how you've changed and where you are now, for listeners that don't know what happened, what your new NDE was, and I guess we back that up a little bit to your love of aviation and also your inclination to build things, apparently. You've got the whole egg gear work thing going on with, within the NDE itself.
1: That's a perfect tie-in niche because, you know, I talked about my other childhood dreams. Now, the aviation one came to fruit after I sort of retired from the war business. You know, I thought, okay, well, I'm used to a pretty high adrenaline life. What am I going to do now that I'm not running off around the world to different war zones? So I said, well, you know, I'm in one place now. I'm going to start building these airplanes I liked as a kid. So the first one I built was a 1917 World War One fighter, a German Fokker triplane. It had three wings. It's just like what the Red Baron flew, but mine wasn't all red. It took me a few years to build it. I built it very faithfully, and then uh, I sold it to an Air Force. I flew it, and then I sold it to an Air Force pilot who loves it. And then I built my second plane, which is called a flying fleet from about nineteen thirty three. It really looks like almost like a soapbox derby car with wings and a big motorcycle engine in front of your face. It truly is a very whimsical design. I teased somebody, said it looks I like a cartoon, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I mean it really was cute. And I, I took it up for its first test flight on October third and did not really like the way it handled, but it was fine. I got it down on the ground and both the pilot and the plane were in reusable condition. So three days later on the 6th, I uh, took it up for its second test flight. And it was on that test flight that I lost my engine. And I did get it restarted, but there was no way I was getting back to my airfield because of the early uh, aviation design. It wasn't very clean aerodynamically. So when you cut the power, it's not like you had a great glide ratio. It came down pretty quickly. So the only place left for me to aim for was a lake at a nearby Boy Scout camp. And I say a lake because the front of the plane curved up, kind of like a boat. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just come down and just coast right into the water (laughs) like a boat and get out and swim to shore. It's an open cockpit, no problem. Well, I came down pretty high, you know, pretty fast. And so when I came into uh, very close to the earth, when I came into ground effect, which is extend your glide, I missed the bank of the lake and I flew right into all the tree trunks right at the edge of the lake came to a stop very short distance. My plane just instantly was turning into matchsticks all around me. When I stopped crashing, there was no aircraft left around me. I was just sort of seat belted to the part behind me. I broke all my ribs, ruptured both lungs. My right leg had multiple fractures. I had a hole in my back from the battery breaking loose of the engine and hitting me at, again, about 70 miles an hour. And uh, luckily, luckily, there was a, a a man fishing nearby who saw everything and he was able to run over and prop me up so I could gasp for air since I didn't have any lungs and he called 911 and they flew in a medical helicopter for me.
0: Did you get in contact with him after?
1: Yeah, he came to the hospital to see me. He's been to my home to see me. In fact, 1 year later after my crash I went out to where I crashed. I wanted to just go and kind of sit there and meditate and just get the vibe of the place. Yes. And when I got there, I, I actually called him on myself. I and said, hey, I'm out here where I crashed. I, I know I'm probably only within 30 feet of it. And he guided me into exactly where I crashed. So that was a kind of an interesting phone call. But uh, he, he's a great guy and we do stay in touch.
0: He saw it all, correct?
1: He saw it all. If it wasn't for him, I'm sure I'd be dead because... Flying up underneath the tree canopy to hit the tree trunks meant I was invisible from anyone flying above trying to locate me. So, you know, by the grace of God, he was there that day.
0: Oh yeah, back to that synchronicity. So, is he the one who filled you in on those details? Because I know that you you just left at some point after the engine. Re- you tried to restart the engine, and if I'm correct here in this, what you were telling on YouTube was you have no memory of crashing.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. I was able to, he, he was probably, his viewpoint was probably the most helpful to helping me put things together, sort of almost reverse engineering how I came down there, like me picking the lake because it was the only place with no trees and no rocks and no hills. So that was obviously what I was trying to do. And the other thing there was interesting is I I was able to locate it by all the scars on the trees from my uh, wings breaking off and cutting across the trees. So that was kind of able to line it up that way. But yes, he was really good to help me to describe, okay, I I looked up inside flying around. I heard that you lost your engine. I saw you aiming for... Here to get here. And then your engine started and stopped. And uh, that was pretty much it. And then, of course, you know, talking to me about when the helicopter crew put me into the helicopter. He said he was surprised it didn't take right off. He said it was taking a while for them to leave, which made him concerned that I had died on the helicopter. And so they were just doing paperwork. Yeah, I think they were probably just making sure I was stable and getting probably breathing tubes into me and whatever else or something like that before they could move move forward to flying me up to the Hartford Trauma Center.
0: You know, you were a mess. And so when you went back that year later and you had this time in that space, what came back to you then?
1: Absolutely nothing. Nothing came back, but I will say this. It was interesting how peaceful it was, how meditative it was. And I thought, you know, I'll be honest, my near-death experience didn't be, as far as I know, it didn't begin until I was in the hospital. I wouldn't really know because my memory wasn't there, but because I was put into an induced coma, it's natural to think, okay, when they did that, that's when my near-death experience started. But honestly, I couldn't say. Maybe it started right there after the crash. It is interesting to go back to a place in which you pretty much could be counted on as having died, to just almost just sit there and just be be cool with it, you yeah. know, and just sort of become one with that moment. I mean, it really does take away what... Culturally, we would say is a horrible face of death. There's no reason it has to be seen that way. It's just maybe somebody doing their job and maybe it's when it's time to go, it's no different than the Uber car stopping outside to pick you up. Uh, it's just the way it is. So there, there's a great piece to it.
0: Well, in the West, there's a, you know, the relationship here with death is very... Estranged, and and it's been by design. If you look back at it, and for people that study it, it's definitely interesting how we've othered it.
1: Isn't that the (laughs) truth? It's no longer part of life. You know, I was reading that even you know a few hundred years ago, when someone passed away, how their their body would be sort of like the wake or whatever might be in the living room or the dining room of the home, and people come by, and it was just so much more. I hate to say it this way, but it was more like dying was a real part of life.
0: Oh, it it was. Not even hundreds of years ago, a hundred years ago. Into the Edwardian period, you would be laid out in the kitchen, on the table, or on, that we had square pianos. They called them coffin pianos often, and you could be laid out in the front parlor. They took photos. You know, there's a whole, the Victorians, as repressed as they were as a society and whole, wherever the Victorian society was still somehow you were in touch with the passing of someone. Everyone got to encounter it. And it I think really more towards the nineteen like once we started getting in the nineteen twenties and definitely up by the up to the fifties in the modern era, you know, we were it was pulled away. Kids didn't get to see the right. dead and uh in photographing wasn't as common it was still happening i mean it still happened it still happens but it it was waning and so there was just this life growth especially after world war 2 and all of that that comes with, in the Western world, rebuilding, which was rebuilding from a lot of great death and suffering at the same time. There's good reason to to see how that mechanism of repression started to creep in and play out, for sure.
1: And it's funny, when something's been so sanitized that the best suit of clothes a person may have ever worn is when they're dead in that box. I know. It's... <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know. I have so much to say about that. So then I think it's a good time to move into in between. I want to touch on some things that I found before I start really just going wherever you go. There are several things you said that just stuck out and I am familiar with the sentiment. I've had my own experience, so it's where there's a relatable aspect here. But when you said the ruthlessness with attachments and dying attachments, I really, that just really hit home. And it's such an important concept because no matter what, the million, trillion, billion, chameleon roadways we take, we all end up at that gate. It's this infinite amount of possibilities, but we all end up (laughs) at that gate, at that cowl, if you will, and we pass through that. And so when you came back, the idea of attachments, how did that actually shift for you? And what was the process from, say, the beginning of coming back into your life with attachments and processing what had happened to where you are now now? with the idea of all that
1: you've covered some really important phases there one the the near death experience itself and then following that as you're sitting there wondering what the heck was that all about and you have some people telling you it was a hallucination and then you have some of the after effects of blown light bulbs and computers going crazy that tell you it wasn't a hallucination and then after that getting into the integration phase that copes with what's next. So you, you just hit the great range there. Um, <laughs> I would say as far as detachment, it's interesting. My first experience with detachment was, I, you might want to say it was an echoing influence after my near death experience. I was laying there in the hospital uh, with this, near-death experience cycling over and over in my head with each iteration adding greater depth and a greater emotional impact and everything. And I'm thinking, what was all this about? Again, as you know, from the way it looked, it's quite strange. And, you know, why would you make up something like that? You know, as far as it looks. And at some point uh, the representation of alcohol was removed from me and it was suspended in there in front of me. And it said, and now I'm not alcoholic, but I, I, Probably did enjoy, you know, my rum and coke at the end of the day or whatever. (laughs) And I said, what do you want to do with this? Do you want to take it with you, meaning into your future, or do you want to leave it behind? They said, if you want to take it with you into your future, I will carry it for you. Mm. If you want to leave it behind, I will remove all your attachment to it. It will be as if you never had a drink and it will have no pull on you. And I said, oh, well, let's just leave it behind. And it literally said, all right. And it just sort of disappeared from view. And I've not had a drink since. Never think about it. It's like I never did it. And it has no pull on me whatsoever. At some point there, it said, always live life in celebration of the individual spirit. All the force of will you'll ever need is found in the art of letting go. For no one, no thing can stand before the brilliance of a truly naked soul.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. And that... It was one of those notes I had here about how amazing that is, that statement, to ruminate on that alone. It speaks to a lot of the mythos we have in other cultures too and as the descent into the underworld with Demeter and Corey uh, and how each gate takes you further down until you're totally nude when there's nothing left And except for, as you described in one of your videos, it's possible the ego of knowing who I am, but not the attachments around who I am.
1: Exactly. Again, don't don't hang on to anything and don't let anything hang on to you. And of course, you know, ego is always trying to attach itself, usually to some past glory. But like they say, no laurels fade faster than the ones you're sitting on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, some of that old spun home wisdom is right on. (laughs) Yeah,
1: these people must have been having some out-of-body experiences or
0: something. (laughs) With the idea of attachments again, when you first came back in to awareness of who you are and your wife and your kids and your life that you had led to that point, what were the very first things that were swimming through your head besides questioning what had happened to you and the experience in the in-between? So what were the things in your life and of your life that that were feeling prescient to you? It's
1: interesting you say that because bringing us back to detachment, the first thing I noticed when I had any sense me whatsoever after the crash. I was already relocated to a rehabilitation hospital from the ICU. And taped to the wall was a photograph of me in northern Afghanistan, standing with some tribal guys smoking Cuban cigars, you know, 50 caliber machine gun belts everywhere. I mean, it's like a real perfect match.com photo. You know, there's a void boy. (laughs) Right. And my uh, wife had taped that to the wall because she wanted to, I guess, kind of remind me that, you know, this is who you are, heal back to this person, you know, whatever. And I looked at that picture and I thought, like, who the hell's that? You know, mm-hmm. like that, that's, that's not me. I mean, I guess that was me, but I think that guy died in a crash. You know, this is, this is Jim 2.0 and that's Jim 1.0 and the crash was the reboot. And I remember just sitting there looking at it, thinking, you know, I I have no affinity or identification or attachment to that person whatsoever. Of course, people would walk in, see the picture, want to hear the story. So I was telling it kind of over and over again. And then I realized I was starting to tell the story in a way that invited them to share their own experiences because I was really getting tired of telling the story. I think that sense of detachment to what someone else thought was the best version of myself made me reflect on the, what I would say was the best version of myself when that – and that was upon dying. You know, on the other side, kind of like getting uh, crap kicked out of me with my experience, um, which is fine. I, um, I would say that was the best version of myself because, you know, we love – we don't love the heroes who are born with silver spoons in their mouths. We love the heroes who get knocked down over and over again, and they just keep getting up because they don't take no for an answer. And sometimes they only get up because they'll starve if they don't. And it's just We can all relate to stories of, like that because we have so much challenge in our lives on a daily basis. So um, I would say the next thing that really started to surface was I had an excellent nurse in the morning. Her name was Jen. And I finally asked her they said, do you mind if I just share what's going on in my head with you? She said, no. And she was really quite interested. I realized you know, before that she enjoyed just kind of hanging out and talking about things. And I told her my near death experience and somewhere in here, she started to cry. I said, why are you crying? And she said, because I don't want you to die. And I said, well, you're a nurse in a hospital. You see death all the time. And she said, yeah, but you're magical. Mm. I said, well, how so? And she said, well, everybody here is very busy and, they may get 15 minutes of their doctor's time a day. For some reason, you have three to five doctors in here for up to an hour and a half. I walk by listening in and be like, what are you guys talking about? And you're talking about all sorts of things other than your medical case. And one has wants you to be in business with them <laughs> and has you on international conference calls with your leg up in the air in its cage, uh, you know, trying trying to put this business deal together. And she said, I've never seen anything like that. So I'd say that was my first revelation about empathy. Empathy is a common, you could almost call a side effect or after effect of having a near-death experience. And certainly I I would say it was the ability that was forefront in my mind and obviously in front of my eyes.
0: (laughs) When you think about who you were and who you were before the accident and all that, how much of an empathetic person, were you? Were you in touch with that?
1: I think I was pretty well-tuned in. But let's face it, a big part of living life is wanting to realize our desires and avoid the things we don't like. So it's very natural, especially once we hit puberty, to start projecting whatever our unfulfilled or uh, emerging desires are upon the world around us. And, I mean, it's easy to test Go onto a dating website, find someone who's attractive, and ask them and said, hey, I just want to ask you a question. For example, if I were on a dating website and I saw an attractive woman, I said, listen, I'm not interested in dating or maybe I am, whatever, but you're attractive, I just want to ask you a question. Do you find it's very difficult to talk to men and find that they do not project upon you every sexual fantasy they've had since they were 13 years old and guarantee you they will say yes. So that scores you big points right there, and they can call it empathy, but, you know, there it is. Mm -hmm. We're so busy projecting upon the world all of our hopes and our dreams and desires— it's very hard to actually see the world as it is. And if you do and you say it, you're generally not invited to the fun parties because it does call out our need to be perhaps more responsible than we are. So I would say that while being, I would say a fairly empathetic person beforehand, uh, the near-death experience taught me how to turn the projector off and see things as they are and be honest. And I would say it this way, here in this world, We see life through the filters we want. And that's like our projections, right? We look in the mirror in the morning and say, oh, there's the best looking person, the most competent person, whatever. But over on the other side, we see life through the filters we need. And it's like looking in a mirror of truth, one in which we cannot filter the reflection through the filters of ego. We see ourselves warts and all. And it's an incredibly humbling experience. And once you've seen yourself in the world that way, you can never unsee it again.
0: Yeah. I agree. Let's look at your experience in the in-between now. Take us through that process of what happened.
1: Sure. It's a best guess as when I showed up. I just characterize it as when I was put into a medically induced coma here so they could conduct many days of very long operations. That's when my near-death experience started. Whether I'm right or wrong is really immaterial, but if I were to say about when it happened, that would be it. I would characterize that I was away for the entire week they had me under. What happened was, in contrast to a lot of near-death experiences where people travel through a tunnel, for me it was like being teleported. Boom. Suddenly I am high up on the terrace of a tall building. Everything, again, is gray. And I look out at a skyline of a city, and everything is destroyed. It's very post-apocalyptic. I've characterized it as Imagine thousands of years after, you know, a big city like New York or Los Angeles either had a a large nuclear blast or maybe that's when the meteor hit or something like that. And I mean, just absolutely dead city. And hovering above me were these incredibly huge storm clouds, Uh, like they were just ready to cut loose with uh, the mother of all storms. And as I was taking this all in, there was no emotion whatsoever, just acceptance. This is what I'm seeing. And all of a sudden, I was hit by this wave of nausea, just went right through me, doubling me over in pain, folks on my stomach. As I did that, I said, I don't think I can stand this. And when I said that, to my left, I heard this light clacking noise, like the clacking of gears or something. And I looked to my left, and I saw a large egg-shaped structure made out of Open lattice work. So there was plenty of room to look through it to the other side, but the, these bands of, I don't know if it was metal or what, uh, basically formed a very tall egg, again, about four stories, 50 feet high. I could see slight movements within, and that's where this sound was coming from. So I was able to make my way over to the egg and look through that open lattice work. And as I did so, I could see the things that were inside. And they were a special kind of gear called a sector gear. When we think of a gear, usually, we imagine like a little circle with some little teeth all the way around it. You know, they spin around and make things move. Well, a sector gear is a partial arc of that gear because it's designed to sweep back and forth, meaning there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to its motion. Well, that's what these were. And they were uh, sort of freely suspended in space in a seemingly uh, uneducated, I could say, uh, chaotic fashion. And what's interesting is they were moving very slowly as if they were in idle mode. And some would just pass right through others, like a ghost. And some were more definite than others, more like uh, in focus. And yet I would say they were all slightly out of focus. and, And I'll tell you why I think that's the case in a little bit. But when I looked at them, whichever one I looked at, whether it was in focus or not, uh, uh, like a video feed would play in my head of their representation. And that was very clear. And to give you an example, uh, like I might look at one and I see myself in it, but as an older man, I might look at another one and I see my children now with children of their own. At some point, I realized these are all events in my future. I'm not seeing anything from the past or the present. Something from the future. And at some point I, um, you know, was one, I think I actually said, you know, what is this? And, and that's when a disembodied voice joined me and stayed with me the entire duration of my experience. And I, I remember saying, you know, what is this thing? And I said, this is the future birthing into the now. Like this is the process of becoming. What happened is I, I reached in and um, to see if I could touch the gears. And one brushed by my hand, and it made me nauseous again. So reflexively, I grabbed it, pulled it through the lattice work, and threw it out. When I did that, all the gears started spinning again. And I said, what's happening now? And I said, each gear, and this is what I think feeds into the fact I couldn't focus on any one of them except to varying degrees. It said, each gear is the probability of a thought, word, or action in your future. Your destiny is resetting itself around what is not meant to be, what you have removed. And so in realizing that these are probabilities, I think that's why they were out of focus. And I think the degree to which they were out of focus could either be represented by how far in the future they were or how uncertain they were in terms of their eventuation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be that something that was, you know, dead set certain to happen was like more clear than anything else. And so I said, well, how did I know I could do that? How did I know I could remove, reach in there and remove the gear? And literally asked me, why else are you here? And I said, well, I have no idea. I don't even know where this place is. And that's when it said, you are in the in-between. And I said, in-between what? And it said, everything. The impossible now between the past and the future. And then I probably had the most perplexed look on my astral face that I could. I said, what is that? That makes no sense. And it said, it's impossible in its short duration. Yet here you are standing inside the eternity of a single moment. And then it challenged me. It said, do you remember the world to which your body belongs? And I tell you right then and there, Nish, if somebody come up to me and said, if you stay here any longer, you can't go back. I would have said, go back where? To your family. What family? Mm-hmm. I had no attachment to this place, no memory of this place. And I think that's also part of being present. Yeah. and Yeah. And it said, you now see the truth and how the past is dust. And I said, okay, well, why do some of these futures that I touch cause me pain and not others? And it said, you know, all choices have unintended consequences, You know, some unfortunate and some not, and the pain each brings is your God. Of course, that begs the question of why I didn't see all of them so well, but I could feel them. Because imagine you saw yourself winning the lottery and winning millions of dollars, but maybe you also become the biggest jerk that ever lived. Well, why don't we just show you what the pain of that decision would be rather than arguing out that you promise to be good if you win, because we don't have all the world's time here to do this. And, and again, it's pretty humbling. So I even asked, you know, where are the gears that feel good? And I said, you're not here to feel good. And again, it's not threatening. It was just like, you're on a mission. We have a certain amount of time. And by feeling good, you're grabbing the wrong gears. You need to be grabbing the ones that cause the pain so we can basically stack the deck improve your future choices, and get you where you need to be by presenting you only with the choices that are to your spiritual betterment. So basically the process of me being there for this, again, period of time I was, was to search around inside the egg, find the gears that hurt, get throw them away and get rid of them, just basically clean up my future. And at one point I actually saw this growing pile of gears, and I said it's starting to look like if I don't have a bad future. I have no future at all. Am I going to die sooner from doing all this? And it said, you know, your destiny has to fit itself around futures that aren't meant to be. And then said something really cool. It said, your number of breaths are already counted. I will worry about your last one. And I said, I don't, I don't know how comforting that is. <laughs> it said, well, eliminating bad choices doesn't mean you might, won't make wrong ones. You won't know they're wrong until after they pass. Since right, wronger, Variables over which you have no control. The answers to what come tomorrow are a waste. Better is to understand the beauty of how everything fits and refits together, and that's its way of saying there is a plan. There's a grand design. Trust in it. Find your place in it, and just sort of surf that wave. And at one point, I said, "You know, so what am I missing here?" Because you know, obviously, this this thing is much bigger than I can really understand. I said, so "What is clearly before you, grace." Said so no one deserves salvation. It can only be given by grace. It is your birthright, but has to be chosen at the expense of the world that separates us. And at some point, I said, "You know, I feel kind of ashamed that yeah, you know, I don't have a moral compass to guide me in choosing these decisions to get rid of. I only have pain, and yeah, again, that's pretty humbling." And I said, um, "One of the coolest things I've ever heard is it, it was right then. It said." If those with choices make poor use of them, then offering fewer possibilities could be called mercy. (laughs) I know, right? Talk about getting your butt kicked. And and at one point there, I I watched the gear pass by and just disintegrated into the dust as it passed uh, from the present to the past. And it said you can't change the past, but you can make better choices in the future. Everything is interconnected and pay more attention to your relationships And then said, you be gentle with others as I'm gentle with you. And I thought about all the pain. I said, you know, what's gentle about all this? (laughs) And said, well, you prayed for something for which being here is the answer. And now the man who fell from the sky is not the same who flew into it. Mm -hmm. And with that, it pretty much kicked me out and and I woke up here.
0: So in this landscape that you found yourself in that was gray with this, the egg is very, it's a potent symbol. We see it in. All over, throughout all kinds of mythos. It's just an, Absolutely. an incredible yep. image. You described the landscape, but were there any other details that, while you were looking around, that stuck out? Just this apocalyptic, like, destroyed city or city that had been destroyed? And then there's the egg. You know, I, that's a good question.
1: And I, I, the closest I've come to with an answer is comparing it to what I call the rainbows and uniforms version of the near death experience where people go through a tunnel, they see their dead loved ones. They see beautiful landscapes, beautiful people <laughs> hear beautiful music, get the big, beautiful message. And then, you know, a hug and a kiss and they get sent back where I'm over there going through boot camp, like I said, getting beaten up. I am like, where's my hug? Um, I know. Right. So honestly, I think the construct of where I was was designed so I wouldn't be distracted by any of that. Again, yeah. on a mission, stay on target, don't look left, don't look right, just stay focused on the mission at hand. That's the purpose of being here. I think that's what it was all about because again, a totally dead city really didn't even invite any kind of exploration whatsoever, and then, of course, you know, with the egg there, truly being the only interesting thing worth looking at more than five seconds, that's what sort of sucked me in, and that's, so that's what I stayed focused on.
0: Do you come from any military family? besides you your My time father, as a correspondent.
1: Sure. My father was in the Navy, uh, so I grew up with a great respect for both the military and law enforcement and I know how how hard those jobs are and I have oh, a yeah. feeling, an understanding of not you know when people say thank you for your service, I think you also you think thank you for your sacrifice. Yes. Because when you're serving either on a base across town or you're overseas, there are a lot of births that are missed. There are a lot of deaths that are missed. There are a lot of major milestones in our lives that are missed because of that service being given, and I think it's that should be part of our, our thought process when we're thinking about what people are giving up to do that. So, having said that, I agree. Uh, you know, would I would say I had I had a very close affiliation with the military outside of my work as a correspondent. I really don't talk too much about it, but we definitely did have a relationship.
0: I appreciate the way you approach things and it's a close in my life. So I actually assess rooms when I go into them, like where's the exit and all this. Gotcha. And so, and then that's part of martial arts as well. And then another thing I forgot in the foundational stuff is, were you brought up religious at all?
1: That's funny. I've got a great one for that obviously growing up in the 60s the first place a person might look for some answers to the big questions would be in a church or a bible or something you know, anyone who's religiously oriented yeah well my grandmother on my father's side was a minister for unity which is a fairly open-minded aspect of christianity so i would save up all my questions all year for when she'd come to visit then i'd keep her up all night asking my questions <laughs> Well, when she wasn't there, one day my parents said, well, why don't you you know, go down the, the four houses to the church and ask your questions there? So I did. This was in uh, 1969 in June. And so I, I went down there and, of course, you know, the, the preacher was getting very busy for the service. So I thought, well, I'll ask them afterwards. Well, afterwards, there was a line of people out the door wanting to shake his hand before they go off to their Sunday lunch. So I thought, well, I'll come back next week. So when I went back next week, he wasn't there. Somebody else was there. Now, this preacher had been there for years, and I just didn't expect. I thought, you know, maybe they're on vacation. So I asked the lady sitting next to me, I said, where's Reverend Coolidge? And she said, oh, we got rid of him. And I said, why? And she goes, because he married his daughter to a black man. Oh, dear. I (laughs) I remember in my gut, I just thought, now I'm with the insane people. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, I just knew. Now remember, I was growing up in Florida in the '60s, so we all know what the prevailing yeah. racial attitudes were, yeah, right there. But I just knew, like, I knew what. I mean, my question was, well, what? What does that have to do with anything? But I knew I better just keep my head low and get through this alive and get home <laughs> and ask my mom if she knew what was going on. So I, I sat there for the entire service. Now I found out from my mom. She said, oh, yeah, they, they did. I forgot to tell you. Sorry. There was a po- very popular singer in the 60s and 70s, Rita Coolidge. Oh, yeah. And this was her dad, who was the minister. Oh, wow. And he had married her slightly older sister, Priscilla, to Booker T of Booker T and the MGs. And this guy was like a legend musically. I think he may have opened for the Beatles one time. Oh, yeah, he's major. Yeah, yeah, he was like major talent. So it's natural. It's natural that despite color, two people who love music like that might meet and fall in love and get married. And that's all it was to him. And he was Cherokee Indian. So, I mean, he's in the middle of it all. So, uh, you know, all of a sudden it just wasn't sitting very well with religious community. And I think it was on that day that God was saying to me this, I'm glad you're asking questions about me. I'm glad you went to church to see if you can get answers. But I'm going to tell you right now, God made man and man made religion. If you walk the ways of man, (laughs) you're going to come out with more questions than you walked in with. But if you walk with me, we're probably going to color outside the lines a lot of times. And where I don't give you answers, I will give you understanding. And that char- I would say that characterized my relationship with God ever since 1969 to right now.
0: Oh, I love that. So how did you find your way? In- and I get this from watching your videos. I love the videos because it looks like you have a beautiful altar behind you, like with a crystal ball and all that. Yeah, right? Which I have. <laughs> I love my crystal balls. But how did you find your way into the eastern section of things?
1: Well, you know, it brings us right to where I left off my last story about going to church. Let's face it, the late 60s, that's when people were starting to hear about ESP or uh, psychic— powers or, <laughs> you know, Eastern, the Eastern religion take on things, you know, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the Beatles and things yes. like that. And so, as a, again, as a very curious person, whether I was curious about airplanes or wildlife or whatever, um, it was natural to take that same curiosity to getting my answers about God. So seeing that religion wasn't going to do it for me, I started, or at least Western religion, I started turning my attention more to the East. And over the next few years, um, you know, I would just talk to whoever I was talking to about what my particular inclinations were. And one person told me one time, said, well, you know, you ought to talk to this physics professor we have at high school. He has meetings with young people who are asking these big questions and they'll read selections from like Socrates and Plato and all that. And so it was definitely not about religion, but it was definitely about thinking deeply about our place in the world. So I did. and, And I got to know him. And eventually I found out he was following a certain Eastern path. And he, you know, when I graduated, he gave me a couple of books because he didn't obviously want to proselytize a student. But these books were just things that were being shared from a teacher in India. And I read them and they just made perfect sense to me. And so like on July 1st, 1977, I became a vegetarian. So that was 43 years ago and stayed with it. And basically I just started living the life of someone following that path right then and there. And, For me, in church, I I could see asking a bunch of my questions and everybody said, well, because we don't know, we're just going to tell you to wait until you're dead and then find out. (laughs) It's like, you know, that's just not working for me. I mean, there's no actionable intelligence in that answer. So what I love is that in the East, they were full of answers. They were thinking of questions I hadn't even thought of yet. So this was just great. I felt that there was just so much. And what I really loved about the Eastern approach First of all, it was non-dual. Here, it's this or that. There, it's this and that. And it was just very non-judgmental. It was just saying, this is how your mind works. This is how your soul works. This is how the higher planes work. And and again, no judgment. But it was the only, these were the only answers I were I was finding. And they seemed pretty satisfactory. And the fact, you know, they were thousands of years old. They'd obviously been yes. well out, if you will. So I just felt like this is a much better foundation that I find myself inclined to follow. So that kind of is what brought me around to the more eastern view of things.
0: Yeah, and it's a beautiful it's so old. And then all the sciences around it, the Vedic stuff. What mm-hmm. what books were those that you mentioned? Do you recall?
1: Could better characterize it this. I mean, the path is called Santma, or also means like the path of the light and the sound. If you were to read Christian Gnosticism, you would find elements of it. Pretty much any religion you read, you would see elements of this path. Yes. S-A-N-T-M-A-T. Just type that in and you'll get all kinds of information. But the really cool thing is I really kind of had to wait 23 years to get initiated into the path. And on the day I got initiated, I said, you know, why the wait? And they said, we don't seek to increase our numbers. (laughs) you You don't need to send us any money. You don't need to call anybody here by any honorific. You never need to see us again you now know what you need to do to basically get out of here, you know, to end the cycles of reincarnation for yourself and go home. So I just thought, wow, a path that doesn't need my money, doesn't need, <laughs> need me to bow, doesn't need me to attend church. I said, this sounds like the path for me.
0: <laughs> oh, isn't it beautiful?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done, but it's, but it's like someone said, the, sometimes the work is about not working. For yeah. instance, there was an analogy That our soul's attachment to this world is like a fine silk scarf knotted up in a thorn bush, whipped in deeper by the winds of desire. And that when you ask to get out of here and God really helps you get out of here, He's getting you out of here by lifting you out one thorn at a time. Mm. Now, in our impatience, we might say, just take it and jerk it. Well, I guess he could, but it would rip up this beautiful scarf. But he's like, nope, I got this. That's where our our patience and our faith comes into play by just letting ourselves be lifted out more gently than we can ever imagine, one thorn at a time. And that's us letting go of our attachments.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great tie-in. And this is a a good place to wrap up this first hour how can people get a hold of you where are you to be found in the digital world
1: of course well i have my website and that's uh inbetweenproductions.com and that's productions with an s so inbetweenproductions.com it's my story there's a click for the uh, amazon book link and you can also contact me through there and see other media links And then I've recently launched my YouTube channel, which is called The In Between, or you can just type in my name, Jim Burton, and find it there, and you alluded to that earlier. Thank you, Dush.
0: Yeah, you pop right up. So we'll see you in a second behind the veil, and this was a great honor, and what a wonderful introduction into your world. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in between the wonderful Jim Routon and we will be heading into a fantastic second hour where we just deepen the chat and get a little bit more insight into the world of the in-between with Jim I would like to thank the producers of this program Jason Lampson, Michael Watcher, Melanie Poe, Christy Tesmer, and Marin Kramer, as well as all the other patrons that put a sparkle in my life. Thank you, and may your dreams be bright and the world be mysterious, because the world is mysterious. Thank you for joining me in the Cosmic Salon.